Hi all, dear listeners. Welcome to this new episode of my podcast, A Digital Tomorrow. I'm joined this time by Commissioner Kelvin Lee, Commissioner at the Securities and Exchange Commission of the Philippines, SEC. It's my absolute pleasure and honor to host you today, Kelvin. Thank you, Professor. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, uh, I'm excited to be on this uh, podcast. Well, I'm excited as well to be able to speak with you. I know you have a very busy schedule, so um, you're taking time for this. It's highly appreciated. No, no I'm happy to make time for you. Please. Um, no, I mean, well, I think uh, we should start maybe like from, from the very beginning, you know. And I know that my listeners always like to know more about um, whoever I invite, you know. And, hmm. and so uh, in this case, I'm sure they will want to know more about you. Um, uh, for example, about your personal journey, if you could please share a bit about that. Um, uh, mm. What made you decide to, to work in the areas you've been working? Uh, anything that you c can share with them? Mm. Oh, okay. Uh, well, uh, just so uh, my name is Kelvin. I'm Kelvin Lee. I am I am an incumbent commissioner, Securities Exchange Commission of the Philippines. I I don't really like the title commissioner. I find it too long. No, <laughs> so so I prefer to be called simply Kelvin or, or Attorney Kelvin. I, I work harder for the attorney title. I think. <laughs> uh, um. Um. As commissioner, I actually oversee a number of regulatory functions here in the in the Philippines. Uh, uh, in particular, I, I focus now on capital markets, uh, fintech, sustainable finance, IT, and international affairs. But a lot of the work now is on the fintech space, obviously, because of all the innovations that are happening, all the new businesses that are starting up. And I got into, I, I became a commissioner. Uh, I came from government. I was a former assistant secretary in the office of the president years back. Uh, prior to that, I was in private sector, you know, but I was, always, despite my my short government service uh, in the office of the president, I was always very, very interested in in the capital markets, in this, in, in in technology and innovations. So I guess one thing led to another. You know, I took a couple, a number of uh, training sessions with the University of Cambridge on fintech, and and it was through my learnings there that I started getting more involved and actually helped. Uh, supervise and uh, sorry, help push for the creation of something we call the Philippine Innovation Office. Essentially, it's an innovation hub here at the SEC. I'm also now because of my fintech focus, um, working on multiple regulations to 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 work on the fintech industry here in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, uh, I wanted to ask you now uh, about two things that you mentioned. Um, first of all, mm -hmm. given that uh, many of my listeners. Uh, are more perhaps on the tech side rather than the fin one, the, the finance one. I wanted uh -huh. to ask you first of all, uh, if you could please share uh, what's the SEC. You know, I mean, what are its main uh, functions and the purposes and anything that you can share in case they don't know what it is. Oh, okay. Well, well, the SEC is the Securities Exchange Commission. Uh, we are patterned after the U.S. Uh, SEC. No, we 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 were. Uh, we were with the United States for a long time. So a lot of our government institutions are based on some of the government institutions uh, at the U.S. And in particular, the, the, the Philippine SEC is unique in the sense that we're a capital market securities regulator. So we're on the fi finance side. Uh, we're also the company registrar. So anything that any anyone who wants to incorporate, create the company, do business in the Philippines has to register with us also in the Philippines. Now on the tech side, 
the reason the on the tech and fintech side, the reason the SEC is so involved here now is because there's of course certain discussions on the treatment of cryptocurrencies, uh, digital assets, uh, whether or not they're considered securities, and of course whether or not they would then fall under the purview of a securities regulator such as ourselves. Um, of course, Professor, you're, you're aware that that, that debate is a <laughs> largely unresolved, yes. no? and it's a touchy one. It's a complicated um, one. It's a very complicated one. Um, but the fact remains is that, uh, at least from the perspective of government at this stage, uh, it is something we need to look at and regulate. Uh, and it, it's a question of how to regulate it, how carefully, how strictly. Um, currently, we try to, I personally try to advocate that, that we want to invite innovations. We want to invite these fintech companies to operate. So we encourage them. But of course, with a very careful caveat that do it within the, the sphere of our regulations. And at the same time, we try to make sure that there's a, there's a how, how do we say this now, that we're not being prohibitive, that we're trying not to block any of these major innovations, major companies from coming in. No? Uh, of course, it's a very delicate balancing. Act. Of course, the, 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 ba- the balance between innovation, tech, and, and, and our mandate no? as, as a primary regulator, it's always a very, very difficult one. But the, at the end of the day, I'd like to think we're still doing well in the sense that uh, a lot of companies still come to the Philippines. We're actually one of the heavy, one of the more popular hubs currently uh, when it comes to fintech and investments. So, so with, at least within ASEAN. So, so I'd like to think we're doing something right now. The the my the SEC and the my counterpart agency, the Central Bank, the the Banco Central ng Pilipinas. Nice. No, I mean regulations are of course a very important uh, mm-hmm. topic. I myself come from a uh, legal uh, background, and mm-hmm. and I know that. Um, uh, talking about regulations in these new areas, new technologies, is always complicated because we know that the law mm-hmm. tends to go slower than, than these new technologies. And we saw that <laughs> with uh, artificial intelligence, for example. Now I know that in the European Union, for example, right mm-hmm. now, uh, well, there are some debates about how to regulate uh, ChatGPT, for example, and, and these yes. uh, and newer uh, technologies. So I definitely want to discuss um, mm-hmm. this later. But uh, before uh, getting there, um, when, when you are telling me about your personal journey, you mentioned as well the um, Philippine Tech Innovation Office as part of the mm. SEC or, or created by the mm. SEC. So mm. uh, if you could please share a bit more about um, this innovation office, like uh, when or why was it created and, and what are, what is this office doing uh, exactly now to mm. promote uh, FinTech in the Philippines or etc. Yeah, well, well, essentially, the, the idea of the, the the FinTech Innovation Office stems from the concept we learned when we when I was taking up that course at the University of Cambridge. There's a there's a course there that's uh, directed through to regulators now through the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance. Um, so I, I was I was part of the pioneer cohort way back in 2019. So I was literally a guinea pig for that particular course. And one of the things that I picked up from that course from that from that course uh, that online course was uh, on the use the 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 the, the debate between regulatory sandboxes and innovation offices, um, innovation hubs. And, and what we gathered from that discussion is that because of the cutting edge nature of fintech, of a lot of these fintech innovations, there is a need for a dedicated office to work on it, uh, to focus on it, to help guide the regulatory uh, uh, regulatory leadership like myself, no, the, the commissioners are up, on how to move forward in this space. So, so that's what we did. We created the fintech innovation office. We call it the Philly Fintech because in the Philippines, we, we like puns here. <laughs> so Philippine Tech Innovation Office, um, and precisely their focus is to try and encourage uh, innovation, to try and be welcoming to new innovation. Now, to be clear, they're not the regulatory side of things, meaning 
If you're going to come in, you're going to register your company. It is not the Philippine Tech's office job to do that. The Philippine Tech's office job is to, if ever, to receive such applications, guide them on some of the issues through through informal steers, what we call informal steers, among others, guide them on how to move forward um, on an quote-unquote informal, non-binding nature. Uh, and guide these companies who are coming into the Philippines where to go, what to do, and what things they they uh, they can do you know, uh, in terms of registration. I have also recently mandated them to be able to do uh, sandboxes. So now, this is the mm-hmm. this is the team now that's working on um, a set of regulatory sandbox rules that we will come at. And this year, I'm hoping to be able to pioneer some uh, some uh, what do you call this? Some uh, open finance frameworks. Sorry, open finance. Uh, uh, technologies uh, to be implemented for some of our regulated entities. Because, uh, Prof, just in case you didn't know, lending and financing companies fall under the SEC and not the central bank here in the Philippines. So it's a very unique situation. <laughs> so it's a very odd situation, actually. But, but as a result of which, um, we want to roll out open finance for them as well, no? for 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 uh, non-bank financial institutions like lending and financing, so NBFIs. So so that's the direction we're looking at. B- bottom line, the Philippine Tech Innovation Office is supposed to be our front-facing uh, entity to to be able to answer your initial queries and to to be able to be like the spokesperson for fintech-related matters for the commission. Uh, they're supposed to be at the forefront of that. So that's their, their primary. It's, it's still a small office, unfortunately. Uh, there's always challenges whenever you try to scale up a new office. But but uh, I'd like to think that they're they're operating well. They're they're they're, they're actually quite quite busy, you know, because of all the 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 invitations to for to, to to meet them, to speak to them, and then to hear how to move forward. So so um, that, that that's the that's essentially the the fintech innovation office now. It's patterned, by the way, Prof. If I may, you know, uh, before we created that office, we had a meeting with representatives from the UK FCA. Um, who also created an innovation hub. So we patterned mm-hmm. our Philippine Tech Innovation Office largely to the innovation hub of FCA. Ah, I see. I see. That's very interesting. I mean, it's great to see this kind of, of initiatives, and especially, as we said before, in areas which tend to be, uh, well, difficult to, to regulate. And this is why I wanted to discuss with you now um, regulations. I know, or I, I read that the SEC, um, well, uh, we're looking to tap experts uh, from universities, UP Law Center, for example, to craft uh, policies on cryptocurrencies, digital assets. Mm. And this is indeed mm. a, a complicated area, as we said uh, before, no? because um, I mean, there are many possible uh, ways to regulate this. We know that uh, mm. certain countries opted for, uh, for prohibition, whereas others are completely uh, free to the point that we know that uh, there are a couple of mm. countries in the world which even adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. Um, as, as weird mm-hmm. as it may sound, no? So the thing is, I mean, the, the, the amount, the range of possibilities is very wide in this area. No? So I guess it's up to each country in the end to decide which approach they want, depending on, on many factors, right? So mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, um, what is the current regulation in the Philippines of uh, digital assets? Uh, mm-hmm. And not just digital assets, but also um, after that, if you could summarize like uh, FinTech in general, no? I mean, any mm-hmm. other area that you wanted to highlight, uh, such as, Mm-hmm. AI, open banking, whatever you want to, to share, mm-hmm. uh, so my audience can get to know a bit more about uh, the Philippines from this regulatory perspective. 
Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, no problem. What, what clarification, Prof, very quickly. The, the UP Law Center, which we have partnered with, is supposed to give us uh, research findings uh, on particular mm -hmm. topics that we... Uh, I, won't, I won't mention the particular topics in the meantime because that, that's supposed to be private initially. Mm -hmm. um, but but they are not the ones drafting the the, mm -hmm. the regulations for us. We, we, we have a team that's working on it here within the FinTech office, which has been trained by University of Cambridge. I understand they're getting some capacity building on open finance and banking as well from, from, uh, from the World Bank, among others. They're also getting some technical assistance from the ADB. You know? so, so there is a team that's focused on drafting what we're calling the digital asset offering rules and the digital asset exchange rules. So those two sets of rules um, will deal with the different permutations when it comes to digital assets. One of which is the, the digital asset side, so the cryptocurrency side, and then the other is the digital asset exchange side, meaning the entity, the self-regulatory organization or SRO, that's supposed to be where these items are traded. Um, take note that these rules, the way we're crafting it and the way we're looking at it, is going to be separate from the VASP rules or the virtual asset service provider rules created and issued by the Central Bank of the Philippines, the, the BSP, the Banco Central ng Filipinas. So looking forward, the, the direction is that any cryptocurrency platform would have to be registered both with the SEC mm -hmm. and with the BSP, depending on the functions or the or the uh, the services they will be offering. But that that's how we're envisioning. Similar to how we currently regulate banks, banks are regulated as a bank and as a publicly listed company, so under the SEC as well. So so that that's that's the general direction we're going with. Now, as to the as to the history of that draft. Just so you're aware, the draft has been undergoing major changes for the last two years. And we actually circulated an initial draft back in 20, I think 2020. But um, we ran into some problems. For instance, in 2020, we had that whole issue with COVID, right? So, so mm -hmm. it was difficult getting the draft out. Uh, and then by the time we kind of got used to it, we kind of got to be ready to issue, to work on the rules again and then to issue it out. Um, there were so many changes in the space. We were worried that the rules that were drafted initially circa 2019, 2020 would no longer reflect reality. So, so we kept on making changes, trying to adjust to the times. And we are, in fact, ready. I was ready to launch it last year, uh, in late 2022. Uh, I think quarter three, quarter four. I actually was holding the draft. And there was an event in the Philippines called the Philippine Blockchain Week where I was supposed to announce, I was asked to do a keynote. I was supposed to announce the issuance of those drafts for public comment and public consultation during that, that particular event. But that was around the time the FPX, of course, you know the yes. FPX thing. You know what yeah. happened there. So, so, so uh, it, was, it was an example of very, very, without, without, without naming names, it was an example of very open regulation. Uh, uh, causing a bit of a crack, no, in 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 the setup. So so, so without criticizing my counterparts there, uh, the the direction at that point was okay not to release the draft, have it go over some changes again because of FTX, and it was hilarious because I'd already my staff already prepared my keynote along the theme of announcing the draft, but since we came to a decision to pull out the draft just the night before that keynote, I had to draft a whole new keynote by myself because it was so late already <laughs> and give the speech early the next day at 9 a.m. It was, it was, it was hilarious. <laughs> um, so, so anyway, the draft now, the digital asset offering, digital asset exchange draft is undergoing uh, revisions. And as I understand it, it's supposed to, <laughs> it's supposed to be released this quarter. No? Um, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, uh, I don't know if you've been monitoring, the IOSCO came out with cryptocurrency, sorry, crypto asset uh, rules and guidance just mm -hmm. this week. So so it goes back to another point as, okay, 
I need we need to make sure it's aligned again. So now we're forced to push it back again just to make sure that it aligns with what IOSCO is issuing yes. out. So so this is an example of a set of rules that just going through such an such a long evolution that I'm actually kind of I, I want to issue it out, but I got to make sure that it stays relevant because every time we kept get, keep get, getting these changes, it gets to be a challenge. No? But um, anyway, I, I'm hoping this, this is the last part of it, the last part of the changes. Uh, hopefully, once we're able to accommodate the requirements of the IOSCO uh, crypto asset uh, regulations, uh, guide regulations that came out this week, um, I'm looking to hopefully issue the the finally issue these digital asset offering digital asset exchange rules um, quarter three, no, uh, just to give us some room to make sure everything is aligned. If not quarter three this year, quarter four maybe, but certainly, certainly, I want this out this year. No? Yeah, I mean, I think the supranational nature of, of these assets, plus how fast everything changes, makes this all much more. Uh, difficult. You mentioned now uh, FTX, and I don't want to talk about that because it was very messy, of course. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so it's not to blame this or that, but but I remember related to this that I was, um, I think FTX happened in mid-November, the uh, collapse, and it was just after the Hong Kong uh, FinTech Week, and I participated in that event as a speaker, as a panelist, and I was actually discussing how to regulate virtual assets, you know, and mm. I remember that uh, some people said that after Terra and Luna, in May last year, uh, they thought that nothing that big would happen. People, you know, uh, people I did networking with. And in the end, like mm -hmm. uh, one week later, FTX happened. So uh, I think the bottom line is you always need to be prepared because you never know what's going to happen. And so, I mean, okay. no matter how prepared you are, I know that things can happen anyway. But at least I think um, it's what you said. No, it's all about keeping the relevance of the regulations as much as possible in order to, I think, prevent as much as possible. Yes. Yes, because don't forget, at the end of the day, regulators like myself, we have to take into consideration not just uh, keeping an open mind, no? keeping an open mind to, to innovations. We also have to be very, very careful about the risks of new innovations, whatever they, whatever risk they might cause, not just to investor protection, not just to investors, but also to the financial system. No, the, 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 the prime example is FTX. If you recall, um, there were some statements at the time when it when it collapsed that it might affect the broader financial system as a whole because everyone was so leveraged in relation to that. So that is exactly what we don't want. We don't want the, whatever new innovation that comes in. Uh, at least I can speak for the Philippines. Now, we don't want whatever new regulations that come into the Philippines. Sorry, whatever new innovations come into the Philippines to cause damage or or risks to our financial stability. I mean, we are a relatively small economy compared to other big countries. So in, in theory, um, it could actually be a little bit easier to destabilize us. You know, one big collapse could actually cause a very, very uh, difficult effect on us. And we don't want that. We want to make sure our financial system, our economy here in the Philippines stays stable, stays safe, stays robust if possible. So so that's why sometimes we, if, if I, we are sometimes criticized for being a little too careful, but I would like to think that in light of the fact of the heavy responsibilities we have, you can't blame regulators for sometimes erring on the side of caution. No? Of course, I, of at, course. at this stage, actually, actually, just balancing the two is very hard. No? Opening, keeping open to innovations, but still, still, always making sure that it will not cause any instability. So it's mm -hmm. it's it's very hard, very hard. No, I think it makes perfect sense. I mean. I think that companies um, are already like bold enough, no? when it, uh, tech companies especially, uh, because it's up to them to create these new technologies and try to implement them. So I think it makes sense for regulators to be cautious, because if you're not cautious, who's going to be cautious? No? So I think it makes perfect sense. Correct. 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 Oh, exactly. 
I, I also read that you published an article, I think it was in the Manila Times, <laughs> where, uh, <laughs> where you, you stated that the SEC was looking into best practices uh, that it can adopt from EU's regulations when it comes to uh, AML, uh, CFT. So mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, you know that uh, the, these new regulations in Europe, MICA, have been going uh, through many changes, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, I just wanted to ask you, uh, which areas of MICA you think that uh, would be more interesting for the Philippines to either adopt or at least uh, study more uh, deeply? Well, on, on our end, it was the money laundering side that uh, piqued our curiosity because at the time when uh, I met with my counterparts at the FCA, you know, in the UK, I, I was on a, I was on a, I, I was, I think I was slated to give a speech in London since I was already there. Uh, we were able to meet with with uh, our counterparts there. And we spoke of how they would regulate digital assets, cryptocurrencies as well. And they pointed out to us that the FCA, you current uh, British regulations, well, at the time, this is about a, roughly about a year ago. Um, at the time, British regulations in relation to cryptocurrency asset regulation focus on the money laundering side, meaning they use the basic AML framework, uh, sorry, anti-money laundering framework, and then applied it to cryptocurrency asset regulation. So that's how they were doing it. But that conversation was pre-MICA, uh, pre-MICA, sorry. So, so meaning it, it, with the way they were doing it at the time, they hadn't been taking into consideration MICA yet. But uh, on the point of MICA, to be very honest, um, I have, I have br only browsed through it, so I can only t talk to you about the broad strokes of it. But certainly one thing that has been consistent about it would be the treatment in relation to securities and securitization. Now, in an effect, the securitization and, and, and crypto assets, uh, it goes back to the point that it looks like it has to be regulated by not only the securities regulator, but also the other financial regulators. So, so this goes back to my point, and because this was a touchy topic for me a few years back when people would say that technically we don't have to regulate it because technically our jurisdiction on this is questionable. But I would think the way the Mika law is worded now, that kind of that kind of confirms that discussion. No? That the, clearly we have jurisdiction, uh, or entities similar to us clearly have jurisdiction over these things. No? So, so, so that that's that's one aspect that is that has been important to me on that point. Now, uh, but but you know what? What another thing that's coming from the EU that I've been I've been monitoring a little more closely than Mika because we already have our working framework, so the Mika wasn't such a uh, problem for me. Is the AI regulations? I've been I've been I've been informed that there are AI regulations coming up, which is interesting because now we're looking at uh, uh, at least me, you know, at least me, we're looking at uh, regulating robo advisories because robo there there have been multiple uh, submissions in relation to robo advisory firms, uh, sorry, robo advisory services here in the Philippines. That's something we're looking to issue out uh, this year as well. You no, know, a set of regulations that focuses on how to regulate robo-advisories and artificial intelligence that, that underpins this technology. So it is also top of mind. Um, the other forms of AI, I'm not so sure we would be the ones to regulate it properly. For instance, ChatGPT would not be not exactly fall under us, not unless ChatGPT continues to give, well, financial advice, I guess, <laughs> among other things. But uh, but certainly, AI is as well top of mind. Interestingly enough, I was just interviewed as well yesterday by another newspaper on the concept of AI, you know? and I, mm -hmm. I also explained that that's something that needs to be regulated, you know, at the, in particular on the robo-advisory and the financial advice side. Um, so, so anyway, I hope that answers the question. <laughs> oh, no, of course, of course it does. Um, and it's nice that you mentioned uh, AI because it's a very hot topic. Uh, and I know um, the European Union is 
looking into um, regulating this uh, more more intensely. I I mean I remember that uh, I think it was a couple of years ago I wrote an academic paper about uh, well how interesting and relevant it would be to to create a regulatory sandbox for uh, black box AI mm -hmm. applications. And I remember that paper was was cited in in some uh, European Parliament. Uh, sessions but well in the end i think that not much was done after that but i know that uh, mm -hmm. now after chat gpt and everything uh, they are trying or looking into regulating this much more uh, intensely yeah. so le let's see what happens you know but of, for sure yeah. there's going to be a lot of mm -hmm. debate not just in the eu no, but uh, worldwide when it comes to ai because i know that the technology has been there for very long but i think these mm -hmm. um, last few months and then chat gpt becoming so mainstream has yeah. to some extent uh, caught many people off guard so it's going to be interesting to see how this all evolves mm -hmm. correct in fact if i may prof no uh, about last year actually the, the whole thing about AI was brought to my attention late last year because I, I was at a panel with, I don't know if you're familiar with Sophia, the, the robot. Mm, uh, yes. There's, there's, a, there's a, yeah, Sophia, the robot. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure how I wound up on a panel with her. It was a, it was a corporate law panel, I think, corporate law and technology panel here in the Philippines. But somehow she was on the panel with me virtually. And the way she was speaking, uh, I remember thinking, wow, if, if this is, the and I understand she's one of the early uh, early designs of the AI, no? so meaning she's, she's one of the prototypes. If this is one of the prototypes and she's already able to speak that intelligently, and this was before ChatGPT really came out, no? um, that, that implied something already about AI. No? It looks like it really is the wave of the future. Um, I also recall there was some sort of odd submission given to me about the AI being able to perform functions of a board, of a member of the board, sit on the board of a company. And I understand there's there's some sort of company, there's some sort of investment company that already uses an AI as a board member in Hong Kong. I think I correct me if I'm wrong. No, so so certainly this intersects with the work I'm doing. No, this this in emphasizes to me, um, AI is here. It's entering the financial space as well. Clearly, something needs to be done in relation to regulating it. Precisely why it's likely we will come up with AI rules. I, I'm just hesitating to use the term AI in the rules or the framework itself. So mm -hmm. so we're still looking at how to. To, to couch that no uh, but but certainly it is something we're looking at and focusing on as well yes actually i remember that uh, i think that sophia um, was invited as a panelist uh, i think in the hong kong fintech week uh, in 2020 mm -hmm. maybe so a while ago i, I would say three years ago mm -hmm. and i remember mm -hmm. i was watching this panel and it was actually quite i mean quite shocking because as you said it's a prototype but seeing a prototype being so advanced makes you think that uh, i mean about two things at least i thought about one the potential of this technology of course the potential is huge but at the same time uh, perhaps it's because my mind is a bit um, uh, twisted by the fact of coming from a regulatory background but i thought as well about uh, all the potential regulatory issues that might mm. uh, appear in the future no and, and i think uh, that's something the regulators in the future will need to to deal with, especially as you said, when, in your case, when it uh, affects uh, financial advice, etc. Mm -hmm. Correct, correct. Completely agree. <laughs> and I wanted to talk now to you about uh, financial inclusion. Uh, financial inclusion mm -hmm. is an area that uh, has always been of much interest to me because I think it's one of the most interesting uh, areas or, or, or use cases no, of fintech in the sense that, um, I mean, of course, I think that making payments uh, faster or cheaper. Uh, uh, in let's say in the European Union or the US is interesting. I'm not saying it's not, but I think the big change, the big thing about fintech, uh, to me at least, it comes from thinking of allowing 
well, a large amount of unbanked people, either let's say Sub-Saharan Africa, in India, Bangladesh, I mean, anywhere, to become banked, to become part of the financial system. I think to me that's maybe like a step one that FinTech needs to to address uh, in many ways, you know, rather than making uh, perhaps my payments like 1% faster. Now, I think that other part should be, to me at least, priority. So I wanted to ask you about that. Um, uh, first of all, if you could um, share with me, because well, I'm not sure about that, uh, what's the percentage of unbanked people in the Philippines? And how do you think that FinTech in the Philippines can help promote financial inclusion, especially in those uh, smaller rural areas, which may be perhaps uh, like uh, farther from from bank branches or the, the things that, that we have in bigger cities? Mm -hmm. Well, um, financial inclusion, of course, is a, is a major point here in the Philippines. So there's actually a financial inclusion. Uh, I, th I think it's called the Financial Inclusion Coordination Steering Committee, uh, which is an interagency uh, group no, here in the Philippines uh, with, with cabinet secretaries actually sitting on it. Uh, so, so ministers, in effect, no, in other countries that are sitting on it. I, I sit on it as well, as I understand. No? Uh, um, it, it, it's uh, one of the major points of the financial inclusion initiatives here would be to make sure that everyone, as you mentioned, everyone or most everyone has a bank account. Uh, aside from bank accounts, uh, easy access to, to funding, easy access to credit, among other things. And based on that, I think it's a 2021 financial inclusion survey of our central bank, the Banco Central, uh, account ownership of, of banking accounts, uh, bank accounts increased, I think, to almost 50 plus percent already in, in 2021, no? just a few years ago, which is a stark contrast to back in 2019. Back in 2019, I think, I think the percentage of bank ownership, uh, bank account ownership is like maybe 20, 30 percent only. So, so uh, of course, it's largely driven by the pandemic, I think, you know, because obviously everyone had to have a bank account at the time. But certainly this tells you that there is a sizable population here in the Philippines that is now more than willing to try uh, and be, be to have bank accounts uh, through fintech. And, and I, I don't think the numbers would have risen so high, meaning the 50 plus percent financial inclusion surveys uh, findings of there being 50 plus percent who have bank accounts now. It wouldn't have risen so high without fintech because most of these people, they have bank accounts, I think, in, in some of the digital banks. For instance, here in the Philippines, one of the very aggressive digital banks would be Union Bank. Um, uh, uh, what else? But we have now these Maya banks. Digital banks are a thing now. This helps, I think, in the financial inclusion side because otherwise they wouldn't have any access to the normal bank accounts anyway. So, so it's been massive. It's been massive, actually. It's, it's, it's obviously it causes some issues as well for us as regulators trying to keep track of this all. But certainly, it's a very active space, and and I'm I'm happy to say that the Filipino people has been well. The Philippines as a whole is a fairly young population, so I think that might have helped in terms of getting the financial inclusion, getting the bank accounts to the number that they are. Now, in relation to your questions, whether or not um, the financial inclusion side, whether or not uh, the numbers are affected by the the how do we say the, the literacy side? No, as I understand it, I correct me if I'm wrong. I might have misunderstood this question, but. Uh, um, not everyone, despite the fairly young population, not everyone, of course, understands how to get into the to to get into a bank account, how to create a bank account through the through the cell phone. So, and this is the point where where capacity building is important. Uh, financial inclusion programs should include uh, training in relation to this space on how to get uh, to to get onto the to the how do we say this. Uh, to get into these bank accounts. Now, take note that I'm not a banking regulator, so the numbers are not as familiar to me mm. as, as as I would like. However, 
I am the, uh, the securities regulator, and I'd like to think one of our newer financial inclusion initiatives includes a sandbox where we where one of our wallets, uh, uh, we have something called Gcash, which is like an e-wallet here in the Philippines. It's 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 like, a, what's the rough equivalent? It's like Venmo in the, Philipp- uh, in, in the US. Mm-hmm. It's like a Kakao. It's like Kakao Pay. Yes, in, in Korea. Korea. Yes. Right, so, so, all right, right. So, so we have Gcash here. And one of the recent initiatives that we just allowed, I, I just approved the sandbox for this a, two, a few months back. Um, essentially, Gcash will now allow stock services, uh, stock brokerage services within the app. And, and so a Gcash currently has a user base of roughly 30 million people. So now suddenly roughly 30 million people now have access to the stock market where before they did not have such easy access to the stock market. So, so I'd like to think that initiatives like that, us allowing initiatives like that, is what helps make financial inclusion a little bit more palatable now moving forward. People now have more access to financial services. People now have more options and uh, availability of investments no? easily on the phone. So, so, And that's the fintech side of things. And I'm very, very happy that we were able to launch that particular sandbox. Uh, I think we just allowed them to go into full... Uh, full rollout of services a few weeks ago. So, so, uh, and I understand a separate payment channel without mentioning name, a separate payment channel here in the Philippines wants to do the exact same thing now. So, so this goes back to my point, no? These fintechs mm-hmm. uh, do help in the financial inclusion side in, in relation to the services because then they now allow more access to services that were never available in the first place to, to or at least not easily available in the first place to the common people here in the Philippines. So, so I, I'm, I'm actually very impressed with the innovation that this particular company, Gcash, has shown us now in particular. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's, that's very relevant. And I wanted to ask you like one final question, which is, uh, of course, related to, to fintech and to some extent to financial inclusion as well. Uh, I wanted mm-hmm. to talk to you about uh, central bank uh, digital currencies. I know, <laughs> you, I know you're not on a central bank, but, uh, <laughs> but still, I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting topic, at least for me, but I know... Yes, it can be um, to some people a controversial one as well, or I mean, perhaps because it's a new one, so many people still don't know very well yet how this is all going to mm-hmm. to work in practice. But I wanted to ask you, like, first of all, uh, if you can let me know your take on CBDCs, especially from a regulatory perspective. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's very important as well. Um, perhaps you haven't like regulated this yet properly, but still, if you have like any thoughts about how do you think that um, should the Philippines have any CBDC in the future or in general? Um, how do you think that CBDCs can coexist with uh, stable coins? Uh, and I'm asking you that because I remember that last year I, I co-authored, uh, I co-chaired a report at the Digital Euro Association, which we sent to the European Commission and other organizations mm-hmm. about uh, trying to see how stable coins could fit in, in the European Union. Should the European Union have the digital euro in the, in the near future? And I know. Uh, there are many overlaps and many opinions. So, do you have any yes. thoughts on this? Uh, nothing too, too confidential or anything like that, I know, but any general thoughts? <laughs> well, well, to be very honest, uh, I have always deferred to the central bank, our, our, our Banco Central in Filipinas, uh, when it comes to CBDCs, because technically it's not, 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 my, not my purview, no? and I, I hesitate to substitute my opinion for theirs. But that, that being said, um, there is a lot of room for CBDCs, and I know for a fact that the central banks within ASEAN are speaking to each other about sorting out some sort of interoperability within ASEAN for their respective CBDCs. Now, this goes back to, 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 to the point that this is government that's working on this. 
and almost anything that government pushes in a major way, like the CBDCs, is likely to succeed because well, it's government. <laughs> no, so so people people will be forced to use it anyway. So so I I personally think that these CBDCs will be successful because of that. No, because it's the central banks. The difference, and this is not an isolated thing. Huh? This is not like one central bank doing this. From what I'm hearing, most central banks are going in this direction to the extent that they're talking to each other about interoperability already. So, I I, I personally think CBDCs will succeed. Now, whether or not the CBDCs can coexist, I think they can. Whoever will have primacy is what I can't tell at this stage. I personally think, though, that CBDCs will slowly but surely erode the user base of, 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 of other cryptocurrencies, even stablecoins. Because at the end of the day, these are backed by central banks. I go back to that point. If the regulator really wants to do something about it, something will happen. Now, will it be the lingua franca? Oh, sorry, sorry. Will it be the, not that lingua franca, will it be the, the end all or be all when it comes to currencies? That I can't tell. Because, of course, there's always going to be that element of people uh, that want something that's quite not on the system. If you know what I mean. Mm. <laughs> so, 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 so there, I'm sure uh, the, the cryptocurrencies that are not CBDCs will still be there. Uh, whether or not they'll be as prevalent or as popular as they are now is what I can't say. You know, once the CBDCs really are there. I was asked that a similar question in Hong Kong a few a few weeks back, I think, a few months back on, on this point. And I remember saying roughly around the same thing. I think CBDCs will slowly edge out most of the user base of the of, of the cryptocurrencies. No? But 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 uh certainly they will both have to coexist for a while. No? I, I think I think it's kind of a I think it's kind of a given. <laughs> no, no, I, I fully agree. I mean, I think that um, those hardcore uh, enthusiasts who buy cryptos because they want to trade with them, um, they will, of course, not switch to CBDCs because I think the purpose is different. But mm -hmm. um, overall, when it comes to using them as a means of payment, it's what you said. No? I mean, whatever has mm -hmm. come from the government is much more uh, like official and regulated. I think in the end will will prevail or at least it will be easier to use. No? But I mean, mm -hmm. of course, it, it's very difficult to say because, I mean, among many other things, the approach of each country is different, you know, depending on mm -hmm. how each country wants to regulate this. So, I mean, mm -hmm. of course, it's impossible to make any kind of general statement. No? I mean, we can only share thoughts like we did now about uh, what the industry looks like no but it's very difficult to to foresee anything because you mentioned as well for example uh, interoperability which is a very interesting topic many um, projects like mbridge are looking into interoperability or the udpn network which was launched in, in davos in switzerland this uh, january mm. are projects that are taking this one step further but but still i mean i was talking on my podcast as well with um, um the fan head the ceo of red Dead. Red Day Technology, which is the architect firm behind China's uh, blockchain service network and mm. and also part of UDPN. And he told me that um, even though interoperability will become very important in the future, uh, that project is still maybe like two, three, four, five years ahead of our time. Because if most countries haven't yet launched a CBDC, talking about interoperability between them is something that will come in the future, but yeah. not yet. So, of course, I mean, it's very difficult to make any kind of predictions in this industry. Mm. Correct, correct. Especially in an industry as innovative and as fast evolving as this one, certainly we, we it, it it's really hard to make predictions. I mean, 
let's be frank. I mean, a few years ago, we would not have predicted the collapse of some of these entities that just collapsed last year, right? None of us would have expected the crypto winter of this stage as well. So, so, so this is such a uh, we're treading on very uncertain grounds, uh, Prof. No, unfortunately. <laughs> No, indeed, indeed. But I think uh, the industry is becoming much more, the, the whole fintech industry, not just crypto, much more uh, regulated, institutionalized. Yes. And I know some yes. people don't like that, but to me, that's the only possible way forward. Um, Correct. Because being on a different level, I mean, you are like on this no, top level regulating, but sometimes I was like on a much lower level, like advising companies, you realize that, um, I mean, I'm not talking about uh, scams or anything like that, but you end up realizing that uh, many projects are actually are they are bound to to fail because especially when the pandemic started, you know, it, it seemed like anyone who um, who knew about law and technology perhaps or didn't know anything didn't have anything to do. They just created mm -hmm. their own company, their own coin, their own this. Uh, yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, I feel there's much more to it than just saying, oh, you know, I'm going to create my coin and start trading this mm -hmm. coin. I think it's much more complicated, especially when you are um, well. Um, not playing, but, but using people's uh, investment, no? I mean, people's mm -hmm. money, I think they need to be careful. So, I, I mean, I know that something as big as FTX was surprising, but I think that there was um, a bit of a Wild West um, vibe yeah. in this whole industry. And I think it, it's important no, for you regulators to, to keep regulating this area more intensely, even if enthusiasts uh, from the area may think that this is kind <laughs> of um, making the nature of the industry change. I think this is a, the only way forward. Those are my thoughts. Correct. Correct, correct. We, we, bottom line, government regulators like myself just don't want instability. We don't want uh, violations of investor protection as well. No? Uh, precisely, and, and, and we really don't want incidents like FTX happening within our jurisdiction. That, that was massive, massive violations all over the place. So, so, so I, I guess one thing I'd like people to realize about us regulators is that we're just trying to make sure you're safe. We're just trying to make sure the financial system is safe. So it's not about us being close-minded about these things. It's about us having to take into consideration your own safety, your own financial safety when it comes to these things. So, mm -hmm. so I, I hope that message slowly gets across to people uh, when you talk about regulators. <laughs> no, no, it, it has to. It has to. I remember that just after FTX, this is my final I thought. No, I mean, I remember that I was talking to the CEO of a crypto company from, from my mm -hmm. country, from Spain. And what that person told me uh, after, because I posted something on LinkedIn, um, kind of praising, you know, uh, Hong Kong's uh, efforts to regulate this more intensely. And this person mm -hmm. told me that, um, that that was a mistake because this was natural selection, he told me. You know? I mean, it was all about that the, the strongest will survive, that the weakest will not mm -hmm. survive. But I think, for example, that ideas like natural selection cannot be applied to finance. We were talking about financial stability. We were talking about uh, protecting investors. No, this is not like the, the nature. No, I mean, you can talk about natural selection. You need to talk about protecting everyone who's involved in the industry you know, and making sure that there's a level playing field that makes Correct. you as a retail or wholesale investor feel safe and then protected. You know? And I think that's the key. I mean, otherwise, it, it's a mistake, I think, to, to focus these areas like in that using that mindset that I know that some people have, but to me, it's, it's a wrong one. Correct. Correct. Completely agree with you on that. And well, um, unfortunately, uh, Kelvin, we are uh, um, uh, yeah. reaching the end of our episode. Uh, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure to be able to speak uh, with you. Uh, we spoke for over 40 minutes about those very interesting topics. And <laughs> I would like to thank you again for your time and for your uh, valuable insights. Uh, 
Thank, thank you for having me, you know, Prof. I appreciate it. I, I apologize if I spoke too much about something. I, I, I kind of get heated and top, passionate about these topics. So, so I hope, I hope, at, at least I was able to get across some some major points. <laughs> you know, sure, sure, no problem. So, uh, thank you. That, that's the idea to, to talk as much as possible about these topics. And I think <laughs> it's it's all been very very clear and, and very relevant for my listeners. So, uh, thank you again, and Kelvin, and well, to all my listeners. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for having my, me. It's been my pleasure. And, and to all my listeners, uh, thank you very much for listening to this episode. And please stay tuned for the next ones. See you, listeners. <laughs>